as Joseph is in the process of talking about wholesome states of mind, talking about uh, renunciation, loving kindness, and soon to be compassion, I thought I would talk about that which um, hinders or obscures these wholesome states from really taking hold or being seen in our experience. Because we find that these wholesome states are really helpful in uh, the freeing of the heart and mind, but that they also are uh, what's there when the mind is free, naturally present. So tonight, looking at greed, hatred, and delusion for some of us, our close friends. <laughs> or at least that's how it feels in my life. <laughs> um, the Buddha referred to these three states as the three poisons, the three fires, and the three unwholesome roots responsible for all suffering. And he said that the absence or cooling of these fires is nibbana, the absence of greed hatred, and delusion. So our path is a process of really looking and seeing how greed, hatred, and delusion arise in our experience. And, you know, we know them in some forms, and yet, I'm sure it's no surprise um, that we see they keep replaying, that they come up in new forms. That, I mean, a classic example is that we've been sitting. Uh, it was pleasant, easeful. Mind was clear, bright. And we actually look, and we don't see greed. But then the experience changes, and suddenly, you know, we see how much attachment there was. You know that these states can be very big, huge, can cause immense suffering in the world, and can be very subtle, hardly detectable, and sometimes just more detectable either through their absence or through when things change. In working with these states, it's really important that we check and see how we're relating to them. Because if we're holding them as the enemy, as the bad guys, I mean, they may be unwholesome, but if we're setting up an aversive relationship to them, this is a way that they get fueled. And it isn't helpful. The Buddha spoke in very practical terms about them. Um, I know he did. <laughs> He's so. Um, in, in speaking about sensual desire, he said, if sensual desire is present in oneself, one knows there is sensual desire in me. There's not a lot of judgment in that. 
Uh, if sensual desire is not ple- present in oneself, one knows there is no sensual desire in me. And one knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise and how unarisen sensual desire can be reduced and how a future arising of sensual desire can be prevented. So, you know, with this, he's really talking about understanding this state deeply so that we really know the causes and conditions. We really know what helps to alleviate, what helps to keep it from arising. And we can't do that if we're working with suppression, denying, if we're keeping it at bay. You know, sometimes through concentration, we find the mind very protected, which has its usefulness. But as a means of strengthening wisdom, we have to look at suffering and the causes of suffering. And if the mind is just in a pleasant abiding, we can't do so. We find if that we try to use sheer willpower or a distancing from these mind states, that it might work so long as we're very diligent, but it's like a little child who's doing something wrong and you tell them and so then you know they want to please they want to be, they want to be good so they don't they refrain from doing what you've just told them not to do but then as soon as you walk out the door they run over and they do it again uh, but if they do it again and they are actually able to see the suffering you know like if you put your hand on a burner and feel the pain of it you realize that, hmm, not a good thing to do. But that, again, comes through the wisdom. You know, and I've, I know for myself, at times in my life, you know, with desire being really strong, sometimes restraint, it's really helpful to help us see the um, way desire plays out. But if we hold that restraint really tightly, you know, and then a point comes where there isn't the same energy in the mind, you know, out comes that desire. So needing to find a way to be steady in the face of these states, to have an interest, to be able to look and see what's happening there, to be able to look and see what the pull is, the interest or the, the, the fascination with, how we keep getting tripped up. And, you know, um, if we look at something like desire, you know, we, it's easy to see that when the mind is uh, not very mindful, you know, that, that that's a time any of these states will come in very strongly. You know, that easily happens. And then, say it's desire, and we start focusing on the object of desire, you know, we just get lost in it. And, you know, the, the desire for that object can become just huge. And yet, you know, when, when mindfulness is brought in, 
when there is a wise attention to this same state of mind, it really loses its power. It doesn't have that same hold. In working with these states, I think something that helps to break down you know, a, a sense of self-righteousness, you know, I'm not going to succumb to these states, or a tightness, is in just feeling the tenacity, how deeply rooted these states are. It really evokes compassion. It evokes patience. Um, I, I remember just seeing that one day, you know, towards the end of a three-month period of practice and being very diligent with mindfulness. But then there was just the thought of a dessert that was waiting at the end of a meal. And, and you know, having been with, you know, the, the meal moment by moment, but suddenly the thought of the dessert took hold. And just feel it wasn't even going for the dessert. It was just feeling the force with which the desire came up was like, wow, wow. So this is what we're working with. And, you know, right there, you know, was a tenderness of heart. And, you know, it dropped the expectation that, that by noting desire once it would be gone. You know, it, and it brought this humility. Uh, wow, you know, this really has a hold in the mind. And then compassion for feeling the pain of, you know, even though it only lasted a moment, in that moment there was just being in touch with the pain of the wanting mind. And so, you know, as I speak about greed, hatred, and delusion tonight, and saying they're unwholesome, speaking about them as the fires, um, you, know, the, uh, you know, sometimes called the taints. Don't take them personally. You know, they are just habituated patterns. They are just grooves in the mind, well-worn grooves that when we're not awake, alive, alert, the mind just falls into these habits because they're known. They become comfortable. We forget. But we're waking up to these patterns. We're waking up to these tendencies. And they're impermanent, transitory, They are not who we are. So beginning with greed, place of needing something in order to be whole, to be happy. The mind looking for Unity outside of itself, either through experience, people, events. We get really mesmerized 
by the objects of our desire. They're very enchanting and hold so much promise. Now this will be what will make us happy. When we start paying attention, we get a sense of this unquenchable thirst. Because we see with desire that even when we get what we want, the satisfaction is so momentary, so fleeting. And yet often, there's strong consequences. You know, we, we start to live in a really self-referential way, going for what I want, I need, fulfillment of my desires, forget about anybody else, which in itself is such a painful place to be living from. We start, when we start paying attention, we feel the agitation of desire, the tiringness of chasing those desires, and the futility. But it you know, takes us really looking into desire, the state. It takes us having a willingness to watch what happens when we keep going for desire? What happens when we strengthen desire? You know, many of us have at times had the coping mechanism with desire to fulfill the desire. You know, it's like something arises in the mind, we really want it, and it keeps re-arising, re-arising, and it's like, okay, just get it so we can get over it. Which can happen. You know, it certainly can happen. But it also fuels that fire for, for that action of going after what we think will bring that happiness. And, you know, we see in the world how rampant greed is and how destructive it can be. You know, we've lived in a time where there's been great opulence in some instances, not all. But we've all witnessed how that's so insecure can be gone in a moment. And this greed is really based in this mistaken notion that we need something else. Something that we don't have right now, but is some promise of. Even just sitting here in the silence the quietness, can be amazing to feel just a subtle form of expectation 
a subtle form of just a little bit more. I think there there was a period in my own practice of really just sitting with expectation. You know, and just seeing how it makes what's here not okay. Need something else. Or, you know, sometimes it will have a stronger flavor. I was sitting on a retreat and uh, one of my neighbors had this wonderful soft cushion, or it looked to be, you know, and really I sat coveting that cushion. And then one night in the middle of the night, when nobody was around, I borrowed it. (laughs) I also got caught. That very person walked in (laughs) three o'clock in the morning (laughs) to discover their cushion was gone. (laughs) Oh, but you know, that wanting mind, you know, that cushion was going to change my sitting to be the very place of liberation. But if I looked into the state of desire itself, (laughs) there's more potential there to see. You know, just the, to see this just as a mind state. You know, just coming out of causes and conditions. We don't have to be driven by it. It's so freeing to just see it. You know, I also remember a moment of, you know, when retreats, these moments are strong, of chocolate, you know, and becoming obsessed with the desire for chocolate. And, you know, I had this ritual of eating one piece each day. But this one day I had a piece and then I had another piece and another piece. And you know, it was like, wow, what's going on here? And then just looking and, you know, suddenly seeing, oh, it's desire. And you know, it was really empty. And then I was sort of like, okay. And yet we believe, we believe over and over again. But with the inquiry, the investigation, mindfulness, you know, really looking, it loses its hold. And yes, it's relentless. Yes, it comes around again and again and again. But we can keep looking. We don't have to give up in the face of. We can keep being with until we know completely the texture of desire and know it's not all it's cracked up to be.
Then we have aversion, which probably we know um, to some degree. Some of us may experience it more than others, where there can be a real repulsiveness to unpleasant experience, circumstances, events, where we feel unable to bear an object, unable to bear what's happening. And sometimes with aversion, hatred, there can actually be an intention to cause harm. And that here we find the desire to be happy is playing out through the need to distance, to separate from that which is unpleasant. can be through an outward striking at, uh, through rage, blame, hostility. Uh, you know, sometimes we find in this outward striking there's a real self-righteousness. Uh, the Buddha actually talked about anger with its um, poison source and fevered climax, murderously sweet. You know, sometimes that, that with anger there is this real seduction to it that seems murderously sweet. Or we can find with aversion that there's the inner recoiling. And, you know, this is where we get stopped by fear. Um, it can also be disappointment, dejection, anxiety, despair. But there, what's happening in the mind is that there is a distancing. You know, and that is holding the promise of happiness. We find that aversion, anger, hatred really reinforce the perception of duality and can have a characteristic of savageness. You know, it's very much like a provoked snake. Um, You know, sometimes we wake up in the morning and just find that 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 savageness is there. You know, we wake up through looking through the lens of aversion and everything is distasteful. You know, it's like, you know, nothing tastes good. Um, uh, And this, too, is just based in misperception. A gift of aversion is that the suffering in it is easier to see than with that of greed. We, if we pay attention, we begin to feel, you know, just aversion, the contraction of heart, the tightness, the recoiling, or the agitation of. And You know, we just look at how it's coloring our mind in that moment and can often see the pain, can often feel the separation. When we pay attention to, sometimes, you know, when it arises quickly, we lash out. We can see the consequences of it see the harm that comes from it. That is what really helps us to wake up to these states. Because when we really see the harm that they cause, it's like, oh, I can't continue to feel this. It creates too much pain, both for ourselves and others. You know, we can see with anger, 
If we lash out in anger at somebody, maybe it's someone we dearly love, it can just cause a breaking, a shattering of trust that can take a long time to repair. And, you know, when we've really been caught in that state and seen the consequences, seen the harm that comes, it really helps to invoke a strength of heart and mind to be steadfast, to not be overrun by the state, but takes us into that deep investigation of what's happening What's happening in a moment of rage? What is the mind identifying with? What's the pull? How does awareness itself affect that? You know, again, I've seen in my own mind, in a moment where that lashing out, or even the intention to lash out happens, And one looks, it breaks the momentum of that habituated groove. It breaks the unconscious behavior that we're being propelled from. And it's like, whoa, you know, you just stop and you look. And again, it can be as empty as that desire. When we get caught, Feeling that pain. Feeling what it's like to identify with. But again, don't take it personally. This is where we're really just working with things in a practical way. You fuel anger. It has a consequence. You know, sometimes we feel the poison in our body. You know, we can get high blood pressure. We can get so contracted. And then it's like, wow, again, we can't continue to perpetuate this. It's said that the antidote to anger is that of patience. You know, and in in these moments of anger, aversion, the savageness that can happen. Breathe. Be with. Look. We don't have to react each time these states take hold. So looking in our experience where aversion is present, being able to recognize, to know, be present with. See how thoughts, the stories, fuel the anger. It's a great way to fan the fire of anger 
You know, often when it's strong, just notice. Is there a big story happening? Taking an interest. And then even the seeing of aversion can become joyful. I remember a retreat where it was just filled with aversion. The seeing of it over and over again. And there was the scene of it. That was what was different. Different to when it's just running rampant. At the end of the retreat, (laughs) I felt very nourished and as if something useful had been touched, seen. It wasn't that it had been just some very pleasing experience, but there was a deepening understanding of how aversion arises. And then we have delusion, which is confusion, (laughs) bewilderment. We tend to not know what's going on um, or can have just a view that's contrary to the way things are and be locked into that view. Delusion is likened to mental darkness. And delusion is a part of um, getting entangled with greed and aversion. But when it's just delusion, there isn't the push or the pull with it. We find with delusion that when it's present, there's an unsettledness. There's not a sense of being in harmony because of this confusion or bewilderment in the mind. Before practice, it could have been that we may have spent a lot of time in delusion and it didn't feel all that bad. You know, there's the saying, ignorance is bliss. And when we're not aware of it, you know, we can just have a sense of really bumbling through, through things. But because there isn't a connection with, uh, is, isn't a scene of the disconnection that happens through delusion, we aren't aware of the suffering. But yet, as we pay attention, we really begin to see how confusion plays out in the mind. And, you know, sometimes many of you, uh, some of you here, others have come in and just talked about how confused, bewildered you feel. And it's actually a really good sign because the confusion is becoming known, that sense of bewilderment. And we begin to see the suffering of it. And that, too, inspires us to look closely. We find with delusion that one of the states that can become very predominant is that of doubt, which comes from a perplexed thinking, a vexation, indecision, not sure what to do. And, you know, doubt can be very common as we meditate. 
you know, and that it really is important to learn to recognize the voice of doubt. You know, sometimes I just would have a sense that, oh, there's a feeling that something isn't right. And when I would look, I would see that there was some form of doubt. You know, whether it was doubt about the practice, the type of practice we're doing, doubt about the teachers, doubt about um, our capacities. You know, in our culture, self-doubt seems to be very prevalent. We, we grow up with um, you know, strong ideas put upon us of perfection. And we're, I don't know who the perfection is according to, but that, that just we're, we're uh, fine through our schooling, not on purpose, but just that, that there is um, something that we should become that we never quite match up to and then doubt our capacity which, you know, really leaves us in a debilitated state, you know, where hopelessness and despair can really take root. And just to say, in speaking about doubt, that skeptical doubt that which is really a problem is very different to doubt that turns to inquiry, which is what we can do when we recognize the voice of doubt. To turn um, with skeptical doubt, there's a distancing, a, you know, it's like we step back from, try to figure out, analyze, where, um, you know, it's, it's like, trying to come to a rational conclusion, you know, and in meditation, it's really a case that we have to discover for ourselves. It takes an inquiry. It takes the deep looking. And, you know, when we notice doubt is there and see that distancing, it can, you know, inspire us to stay connected, to keep looking, And what really helps with the dispelling of delusion is the continuity of mindfulness. And so when we we find with continuity of mindfulness that doubt has no place to arise. Doubt itself arises in very convincing forms. You know, where it really can arise as the voice of wisdom. But to notice where that voice of wisdom has that effect of distancing, has that effect of creating a sense of insecurity, confusion, bewilderment. So delusion, the seeing of, can be that recognition of confusion, bewilderment, the voice of doubt, uncertainty. 
We might also notice how when it's present, there is that grasping for something certain, something to hang on to, something that feels trustworthy. And we, you know, if we're somebody who is often um, visited by delusion, you know, where that's our habituated pattern in the mind, there's a real tendency to form strong views and opinions that keep one with a sense of safety, that keep one f- from feeling the. Uh, feeling how unpleasant the doubting mind can be. And that's where it takes a real willingness to explore doubt because it, it is very unsettling and you know, leads to the mind just jumping, 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 trying to rest upon something. But to know, to know this is the texture of the doubting mind. To, to not have to just jump into the believing, the thoughts about the doubt, the perplexity. To not have to identify with confusion, the seeing the difference between the state of confusion, being lost in it, and the knowing of confusion. We really work with whatever is present, so be it confusion. Know the confusion. Staying steady in the seeing of it. Knowing again what fuels it. You know, be- believing in the thoughts in a moment of doubt in practice. You know, you have the thought, what if this is the right way to practice? What if I do this for the rest of my life and it's the wrong way? Ah, man, how to stop in your tracks right there. And that's what happens when confusion, doubt is strong and believed. Really halts. And then feeling the pain of lost. Feeling the pain of not knowing. As we look into these three states, greed, hatred, delusion, to also remember that there is an absence of these states and to remember to notice these, to notice the moments of non-greed where the mind isn't wanting anything, where there may be inclination to be generous, to give, where there isn't a looking for objects of desire, where there's a non-stickiness in the mind, or the moments of non-hatred, where there's no ill will present, where there's no aversion, 
We're not living in opposition to the way things are. And where there's a a deep caring and respect, we find that non-hatred manifests as loving kindness, compassion, gentleness, friendliness. We move out of our self-absorbed way of living and live again in connection with life. The moments of non-delusion, where there's non-bewilderment, where there is clear seeing. We explore the times of greed, hatred, delusion, the times of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, The Buddha talked about abandoning greed, hatred, and delusion. He said, Abandon what is unwholesome. One can abandon what is unwholesome. And if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring about harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. And we abandon through wisdom, through clear seeing and understanding. The Buddha also said, if greed, hatred, and delusion have been completely destroyed insofar as Nibbana is visible here and now, not delayed, inviting of inspection, directly experienceable experienceable by the wise. He also pointed to the Noble Eightfold Path as being the way to realize this end of greed, hatred, and delusion. This is what Joseph has been talking about. So what we find is that through our practice, through attending to our experience, with wise attention, through being diligent, caring, kind, in meeting this moment as it is, that this becomes the path to freedom. The work that we are doing can be of immense benefit, not just for ourselves, but we begin to feel the effects of not being captivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And we begin to see that when that isn't our default, it has an implication. It has an effect in the world.
when we look around the world at the pain and the suffering and see that the roots of that pain and suffering are really knowable in our own experience. That we can work with the very roots of what causes that suffering. It becomes very interesting. And it's work that is of benefit not just to ourselves, but to the world at large. So I invite you to this exploration. An exploration that can lead us to the highest peace. Supreme happiness. Leads us to the depths of our being. To discover that which is unbound. Let's just sit for a moment. May all beings be free of greed, hatred, and delusion and come to know the highest peace. Closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.